Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City. Today, we're beginning a brand new series. Over the next few months, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to get to have some conversations that I believe are essential for us to live out our faith well in our current cultural and historical moment. Over the next few months, we're going to have conversations focused on things like Jesus' intentional care for people who live at the margins of Jewish society and what that means for us and how we engage people at the margins of our own society, as well as things like economic injustice, corrupt religious systems, and greed. And we'll talk about these things because Jesus talks about these things. We'll see Jesus as he heals numerous people. And through it all, we'll notice that Mark writes his gospel in a unique way. It is action-oriented and fast-paced. I mean, Mark is going to use the word immediately 41 times in just 16 chapters. And it's all for a purpose, Mark is seeking to accomplish a specific goal through the writing of this gospel. I think it's easy for us to pick up our Bibles and to read them without giving much thought to the original audiences of the Bible, but that's what I want to do today. Mark is writing in a particular place, in a particular time, to a particular people who are enduring and living through a particular cultural and political and economic reality. And I think that if we can make sense of those realities, we'll discover that Mark's gospel speaks to us in our particular place and in our particular time, living through our particular cultural and political and economic realities in a deep and meaningful way. So that's what we're going to attempt to do today. We're going to attempt to have a conversation where we make sense of the cultural and historical realities of Mark's original audience and in doing that, my hope is that we will be reminded of a simple and yet profound truth that is intended to govern and orient our lives. So, I'm going to read our passage, and then I'm going to pray. And then we'll start into our conversation. This is how Mark's gospel begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, real quick, it's a minor thing, but I think it's something that is important to us as we read through the Gospel of Mark and really try to understand and make sense of the way that the 
Biblical writers use language. Mark here says that all the people of Jerusalem and the whole Judean countryside went to John. We know that that's just not exactly true. Mark is using a literary device known as hyperbole. He's overstating the point to make a point. A lot of people from the Judean countryside, a lot of people from Jerusalem went out to John to repent and to be baptized. But as we'll discover, and as many of us already likely know, as we trace through the story of Jesus' life, he's not embraced by everyone. Not every person in the Judean countryside and in Jerusalem has gone out to John to be baptized. So it's important for us as we read this to recognize Mark's employing a literary device here to say a lot of people. The story continues. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words. Words we believe and understand are inspired by your Spirit. That they are words meant to teach us, to guide us, to lead us, to understand and know who you are and who your Son Jesus is more deeply and more fully that we might live more like him. So Father, would you speak to us now? Would we hear what you want us to hear? Imprint on our hearts your truth, Father. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Now, in order for us to begin making sense of the cultural and historical realities that are facing Mark's original audience, I'm going to tell you a story about a man a military leader, excuse me, named Vespasian, who will become emperor. At the eastern margin of the empire, a small and unruly group of people, after years of engaging in small skirmishes and targeted attacks against the empire and its authorities, they rise up in all-out revolt against the empire. And at First, their revolt is successful. 
They drive out the empire's political and military leaders, and they set up a new rogue government. And for a little while, they enjoy self-governance and freedom from the empire's oppressive occupation of their land. The emperor, though, a man named Nero, recognizes that to maintain peace, security, and stability throughout the empire, the insurgents need to be emphatically defeated. So he sends a military leader, a man named Vespasian, to the region to crush the revolt. And that's exactly what this military leader does. Over the course of approximately four years, in systematic and ruthless fashion, he puts down the people's revolt. And for good measure... He destroys the most important building in the region, the temple. And he burns and destroys the most important city in the region as well. Now, while all of this was happening, the rest of the empire was experiencing a political and cultural and economic crisis. The empire was running out of both money and food. The emperor, who had just sent this military leader to the eastern region of the empire to crush the revolt, commits suicide. And the year that follows is known in the empire's history as the year of the four emperors. I mean, can you imagine that? Just imagine that for a moment. What would it be like here in America if our president committed suicide? And then, over the course of the next 12 months, four different people rose to power. Can you imagine how uncertain, how unsteady, how unstable everything would feel? I mean, by the time we got to that fourth president, would we even believe that they were a legitimate leader? Now, back to our story. The military leader, as he's returning from his successful military campaign in the East, is anointed emperor. He's the fourth emperor in the year of four emperors. But... There's a problem. Our military leader is a commoner. He isn't a member of the empire's cultural or political elite. The empire's first emperor was believed to be a god. Temples were built throughout the entire empire where he was worshipped. Every emperor that succeeded the first emperor was one of his descendants and therefore was known as a son of God. But our military leader, Vespasian, wasn't a descendant of the first emperor. He was not considered a son of God. And so, with the power and resource of the empire behind him, the new emperor launches a massive propaganda campaign, all in pursuit of turning himself into a god. And he does this in four ways. 
first. The massive propaganda campaign started by creating an alternative truth and an alternative history that was used to reframe and retell the story of the military leader's victory in the eastern region of the empire. An alternative truth that employed alternative facts that claimed the military leader's victory was not only a manifestation of his godlike power, but that it was evidence of God's favor upon him. And that the peace and security and stability that resulted from his military victory and that supposedly now existed throughout the entire empire, it was all evidence of the way that God was uniquely empowering him. Second, a massive building campaign was launched all throughout the empire. Everywhere people looked, opulent buildings and structures were being constructed, all with the military leader's name on them, all functioning as a claim to the military leader's greatness and power and stature as a god. The most important building the military leader constructed was known as the Temple of Peace. It was a grand and significant monument that specifically bore witness to the military leader's strength and power. It was the place where he put some of the religious and sacred artifacts that he had taken from the temple in the eastern region of the empire and he placed those now into the Temple of Peace. And the Temple of Peace, it functioned almost as a museum of his military conquest and his power. And it demonstrated the way that he alone was capable of ensuring peace, security, and stability for the empire. Third, stories of supernatural healings were created. And then they were told all throughout the empire. One of those stories was about a blind man who came to the military leader and asked for his sight to be restored. And the story goes that the military leader spit into his hands and then rubbed the spit into the blind man's eyes. And the blind man then opens his eyes and can see. It's a story that sounds a lot like one of the stories about Jesus. There's another story of a man who has a crippled hand. And in that story, the military leader, now emperor, touches the man's hand. And he's able to stretch it out and it is fully healed. Another story that has echoes of a miraculous healing that Jesus performed. Now, lastly, the emperor, the new emperor, Vespasian, he enlists the empire's historians to reframe and retell one religion's sacred writings. This religion's sacred writings had prophecies that foretold 
of a day that a Messiah would come and rescue his people. The people who practiced this religion, many of them believed that the Messiah had already come and that that Messiah had died on a cross and then was risen from the dead. But the empire's historians, they offered a reinterpretation of those messianic prophecies. They claimed that those messianic prophecies did not point to the man who died on the cross, but to the military leader, to Vespasian. That Vespasian was the fulfillment of that religion's messianic prophecies. And it is into this context that Mark writes his gospel. It's this context in which his first audience receives and reads his words. And it's because of this that we can understand Mark's first words in his gospel are nothing less than explosive and subversive. Mark is likely writing from Rome, the heart of the empire. He's well aware of the emperor's propaganda and messianic claims. He's writing his gospel for people who have chosen to trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord, who believe Jesus is the Messiah, who are susceptible to being co-opted by the emperor's propaganda and alternative facts and abandoning their faith in Jesus. Mark's intent is clear. He's making a definitive claim. Jesus is the Messiah, not the Emperor. In Mark 1.1, we read, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It's one verse. In the original language, it's just seven words. It's not even a complete sentence. And in seven words, one verse, an incomplete sentence, Mark pushes back hard against the Roman propaganda machine and its claims that Vespasian is the Messiah. Mark is making a clear, emphatic statement that Jesus is the Messiah, not the Emperor. That Jesus alone saves us. That Jesus alone rescues us. And that Jesus alone is the source of peace and security and stability. And he does this by reclaiming two words and one phrase that the imperial propaganda machine was using to describe Vespasian. The first word is good news. In the original language, it's the word euangelion. Mark is making the case that Jesus alone is the good news. That in Jesus alone is all of the good news that we'll ever need. Throughout Rome, the word was used in the context of political and military accomplishments or victories. For example, when an emperor had a child, it was announced throughout the empire as good news. Or when a military victory was achieved, it was proclaimed throughout Rome as good news. The difference is that in Roman culture, the word was always used in the plural form. 
And I know that that sounds like unimportant grammar, but it isn't. It indicates that the emperor had to continually produce good news as evidence of his effective rule and status as a god. That all throughout the emperor's reign, he had to continually show evidence. He had to continually win wars. He had to continually demonstrate his godlike status. That good news was not just a one-time thing proclaimed throughout the kingdom, but that it had to be continually proclaimed as a way of keeping up the emperor's appearance as a god. But Mark uses the word in a singular form. It's as though Mark is saying to his original readers, the emperor who claims to be the Messiah, he's got to proclaim good news over and over and over again, but not Jesus. Jesus is the good news himself. Jesus is singularly the good news. His life, death, and resurrection are all the good news we need, and he does not need to prove himself over and over like the emperor. Now, the second word that Mark uses here in the first verse of Mark 1 is the word Messiah. The word literally means anointed. Mark is unequivocally stating that Jesus, not the emperor, is God's anointed one to rule over his people and his kingdom with both righteousness and justice. And by claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, Mark is also claiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic prophecies, not Vespasian. In verses 2 and 3, Mark quotes, Two Old Testament messianic prophecies. He mashes them together and he attributes them to Isaiah, even though one is from Malachi and the other is from Isaiah. This is what Mark writes in verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. We understand that the messenger that these Old Testament prophecies are pointing to is John the Baptist. And the messenger is one we're told precedes and prepares the way for the Messiah. Mark is making it clear that in John's arrival, that in the presence of John carrying out his ministry at the Jordan River, we have the arrival of the messenger who signals the coming of the Messiah. And Mark is making it clear that these Old Testament messianic prophecies, they find their fulfillment in Jesus, not the emperor. And lastly, Mark employs this phrase. It's two Greek words that we translate as son of God. This designation, it's repeated by Mark in verse 11. Mark there writes about Jesus' baptism. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. 
With you I am well pleased. Twice then, in the first 13 verses of his gospel, Mark claims that Jesus is the Son of God. A title that you'll remember in Roman culture was ascribed to the male children of Rome's first emperor. Mark makes it clear that while the children of the emperor may be called sons of God, their birth and their origin is human. Jesus' birth is divine. The emperor's children descend from other people, but Jesus is God's son, therefore alone to be called the son of God. Jesus' status as the Son of God is affirmed by a voice from heaven. Each of these three words, or two words and a phrase, they're direct refutations of Roman imperial propaganda. Each of these three words subverts the emperor's claim to be the Messiah. Mark, again, is making it clear to his original audience. Jesus is the good news, not the emperor. Jesus is the Messiah, not the emperor. And Jesus is the Son of God, not the emperor. Now, as I was preparing for today, I kept asking myself the question, but why did Mark feel the need to so clearly and unequivocally make the case that Jesus is the Messiah? Wouldn't these early followers of Jesus know better than to trust and believe Roman propaganda? And then I thought about our cultural moment and our cultural reality and how many people we have seen embrace propaganda, embrace alternative understandings of reality, embrace alternative facts, who believe in conspiracy theories. So if our culture is any indication, then the answer is clear as to why Mark is writing these first 13 verses. Why he's so clearly and unequivocally attempting to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah. Because even followers of Jesus can fall prey to conspiracies and well-crafted media narratives and government-sanctioned propaganda. I mean... Think of the context these original or early Christians inhabited. Jesus, the one that they had placed their hope, faith, and trust in, he had been murdered by Roman imperial authorities. The temple, God's sanctuary, and the most important structure in all of Judaism was destroyed by Roman imperial authorities. And the city of Jerusalem, God's city, was destroyed by Roman imperial authorities. If we were Christians in Rome at the time of Mark's writing, it's understandable that we even might at least question whether or not the God we've staked our lives on is real. Especially when the Roman emperor and 
military in some ways appear to be more powerful. Even when the emperor appears to be able to do some of the things that Jesus himself did. Propaganda is powerful. And Mark is pushing back against it hard. He wants the earliest followers of Jesus to know that the one they've risked everything to follow is in fact the one true singular Messiah. But what does any of this have to do with us today? In some ways, it might be clear. We see the ways that today political leaders and parties use alternative facts to create alternative realities. We see the effects of propaganda and conspiracy theories in our own families and communities and country. We see the way that they divide us, the way that they lead us astray, the ways that they lead us away from Jesus. But I think Mark is inviting us to something much deeper. Vespasian uses imperial propaganda to reframe himself as the Messiah. Mark, however, refutes Vespasian claims and states unequivocally that Jesus is the one true and only Messiah. A few moments ago, I mentioned that the word Messiah simply means anointed. The Messiah, at least according to the Old Testament, is the one that God will anoint to rule over his people and kingdom with righteousness and justice. A Messiah rules over people, claiming that they alone are capable of delivering peace, security, and prosperity. And church, there are lots Things in our culture that claim to be able to deliver peace, security, and prosperity. Political leaders, political parties, influencers, technology, even seemingly some diets and fitness routines. I'm sure we all remember political leaders who would paint bleak, almost dystopian visions of America and then say to us that they understood all of the realities that affect us better than anyone else could understand them and then say that they alone can fix it. We see every day the way that political parties pit themselves against one another, trying to convince us that if the other party were to come fully into power, that America as we know it would be destroyed. And so we need to vote for them as a way of protecting against America being destroyed. Every time we open Instagram, we see beautiful influencers telling us how we can find the good life, how we can find fulfillment and satisfaction like they have. 
And I don't know about you, but I feel like every time Apple releases a new iPhone, they tout it as practically being able to single-handedly improve my relationships, manage my health, track my finances, and also, if necessary, save my life. The problem isn't that these things exist. The problem is that even if we don't trust them fully, I think we trust them too much. Each of these things attempts to take on the role of being a messiah. And messiahs want our love and loyalty. They want our affection and allegiance. And we are all too ready to give it to them. We're all too ready to give our love and loyalty, our affection and allegiance that is intended for Jesus alone. Because he alone is God's anointed. He alone has been appointed by God to rule over us and creation with righteousness and justice. He alone is able to rescue and redeem. He alone is able to bring wholeness and security and peace. And yet... Rather than offer to him our undivided love and loyalty, our undivided affection and allegiance, we give them away to other lesser things. What is it for you? What are the things that you're tempted to trust, to place your hope in, to give your love and loyalty, your affection and allegiance to, rather than Jesus? What is it for us? Where are our love and loyalty, our affection and allegiance divided? What do we allow to rule over us, even if only in part? Church Mark makes it clear. There is one Messiah. There is one source of good news. There is one Son of God, Jesus. And he alone is where our love and loyalty and our affection and allegiance are to be oriented and focused. Church, we need to be aware that just as Mark's original audience existed in a culture filled with propaganda, trying to convince them that something else could save them, that something else could rescue them, that something else could deliver to them peace and prosperity and stability and security, that nothing else, that no one else 
other than Jesus can do it. And that we too need to have our eyes wide open. We too need to live our lives with wisdom and discernment, noticing and identifying propaganda where it is, where people are trying to paint alternative realities using alternative facts to convince us to follow them, to trust them, to give to them our love and loyalty, to give to them and to entrust to them our affection and allegiance. Church, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the good news. And he is the only one that we are to allow to rule and reign over us. Let's pray together. Father, wow. Um, man, I feel like I was rambling even a little, and I pray that that might not be true, Father, that you would that you would use these words. We trust that your word, it, it, it's never void, that when we read your word, we discover you and understand you and can learn about you in new ways. So, Father, would you meet us? Would you implant into our hearts the truth that you would have for us? Father, help us to retain what is good and right and true and plant that into our hearts that we might become more like you, that we might be able to live more like you, that we might be able to love more like you. Father, we pray in your son's name. Amen.